They say patience is a virtue. But I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my aim. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Untelevised, the podcast. We've reached double digits. <laughs> Yay! Yay. <laughs> um, we hope that you're all doing well. Uh, how are you doing this week, Mona? <laughs> I'm quite foggy today. <laughs> I've been waking up super early for no good reason. I'm trying to be productive and use that extra early time productively, but obviously you're just tired. But I'm trying to be like, let me get some work done. Today I started reading a really depressing book, so that didn't didn't help me at all. <laughs> oh. Anyway, for a few for a future episode, lo- 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 lots and lots of uh, dark analysis. Of on on society but yeah but you know I'm I'm feeling quite uplifted by this episode um so I'm hoping I'm gonna feel a little bit more revitalized shortly yeah it's funny um I've actually like intentionally been waking up super early uh, and I must admit it's an it's an adjustment <laughs> I've been waking up sort of like 5 five thirty to go on morning walks because I I I don't know it's really actually quite nice to be in the air at that time where things are a bit more still etc but I must admit by about five o'clock in the afternoon I do feel like I've been up for two two days straight <laughs> so it's a bit of an adjustment um I mean, our, our producer the other day in our meeting was like, but are you just walking around in the dark in that case? <laughs> you were like, yes, I am. <laughs> and to be fair, it is still dark, which is actually quite nice. It's like you feel like you're waking up with the day, but I'm not sure how sustainable it is for, for, for me. Um, but aside from that, it's weird. I feel like it's a time of year where I start to be a bit reflective on what's happened during the year and um, intentions for the next year, I guess. So in that way, I'm feeling quite positive, um, which is which is nice. Hopefully um, this episode doesn't do too much to dismantle that. No, no, I I think, um, yeah, I mean, the topic is not a light one, but our guests are, um, you uh, you soon here, are amazing, yeah. um, super proactive, positive people, which we like. Um, but yeah, maybe we should kind of get into what it actually is all about. I mean, following on from our episode last time about capitalism, uh, we thought we'd kind of dig into one of the quite important elements of capitalism, um, which we touched upon last time, which is workers' rights. And uh, workers' rights, well, they've always been important, but I think especially after this year of COVID, um, they seem very prominent. And I think maybe people could do even more with knowing what they actually are. No, definitely. I think it's one of those things that are sort of always present, but we don't necessarily think of until there's a problem or an issue or something that we're trying to address. So I think it's hopefully going to be really interesting for people to actually learn about some of the origins, why they're important, what they can do to protect themselves a bit more. And like you said, our guests this week, I'm just, I'm really excited about. So should we define some quite key terms in that case? Yeah, let's jump into into the learn part. <laughs> I 
Okay, so I guess the main term that we might want to define this week is trade union because it's something we're going to hear a lot. And I guess it's one of the main tools or vehicles we have in the UK to address and sustain and fight for workers' rights. Um, So a trade union is a group of employees who work together to either improve or sometimes just to maintain their conditions of employment. Most trade unions are independent of the employers but have a close working relationship with them. So they do things like collectively bargain for better pay and conditions for all workers, working to improve the quality of public services, political campaigning and industrial action. And actually, they have brought about many of the things that we know and love about working life in the modern age. So things like minimum wage came through trade unions, the abolition of child labour, reduced numbers of hours in the working week. So the fact that we have like nine to five, five days a week is something that was introduced by trade unions. Things like maternity leave, minimum holidays and sick pay and all of these kind of things. They weren't things that just like appeared out of thin air and employers decided to give. These were all things that were fought for by these organisations. And according to Union, which is a trade union, unionised workplaces actually earn around 12.5% more than non-unionised workplaces. So they actually really do protect and uphold rights and even fight for better conditions. So in total in the UK, nearly 7 million people belong to a trade union. And that sounds like loads, but actually when you put it into the context that there are over 30 million working people in the UK, it's not actually that much. There are quite a few people that aren't part of unions. And union members can include anything from nurses, um, hospital cleaners, to professional football players, teaching assistants, bus drivers, and even things like apprentices. So it's quite a varied um, group of people. You know, it's really interesting you mentioned all these things that now people really do take for granted and they definitely think they should have in their working life and they all came through unions and yet unions are actually painted in quite a negative light and as being these very awkward and difficult people that are almost like halting the flow of working life. So I think it's actually really interesting to look at the fact that, wait a minute, all the stuff that you think that you just should have came through unions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. To be honest, um, in the modern day, in terms of my interaction, a lot of when I think about unions is when I think, oh, the tube strikes and stuff like that, where people think of it in the inconveniences maybe to their lives and don't actually recognise all of the things that they take for granted, like you say, that have only come about because of unions and unionised people. So another um, thing that Fazeo mentioned there was um, the minimum wage, which was fought for by unions. And I was really shocked to find that this literally national minimum wage um, was only implemented in 1999. Um, That's really not that long ago. I mean, I was like 13 or something, you know, so it's in our lifetime. Um, And, you know, again, you take that for granted to some extent now. So... Minimum wage is another feature of, I guess, what we talked about last week as kind of like the welfare state, a way of giving people an at least a basic level of protection and a basic level of like standard of life that maybe we think everybody should have. And so in theory, it is illegal to pay anybody below the national um, minimum wage. But, you know, there are definitely people that aren't paid the national uh, minimum wage. At the moment, for anybody who's 25 and over, the national minimum wage is £8.72 per hour. For people between 21 and 24 years old, it's a bit less. It's £8.20. For people who are between 18 and 20, it's only £6.45. And if you're under 18 and working, you get £4.55 pence an hour for your work. So it's also dependent on your age. 
And then in more recent years, there has been a lot of campaigning for something called a living wage, um, which kind of is actually saying minimum wage is not even enough. Like people can't really live on that, which therefore makes me feel like the minimum wage should be the living wage. But anyway, so <laughs> we've now got something called the living wage, um, which for the UK wide is £9.50 an hour and in London is £10.75 an hour because, you know, um, costs in London are greater. Now, not everybody pays that at all. And actually, employers can sort of apply to get an accredited stamp that says we are a living wage employer. And then that's kind of seen as being quite a sort of being a progressive employer if you do it, but you are not legally bound to do it. Often, maybe organisations that are a bit more socially minded, like charities, etc., probably will try and pay it, but it is not a legal obligation. And it is worth noting that there are a lot of people it's still to this day who, especially maybe if they are undocumented, if they're refugees, if they're migrants, if they don't know the laws of the land, if they can't defend themselves, are not even paid the minimum wage. And also to note that there are still people in this day and age who aren't paid actually at all for their labour. So this idea that slave labour is a thing of the past is definitely not the case. Yeah, and I know that there are also statistics around um, women's pay compared to men and then within that sort of black, Asian and the different um, ethnicities pay in comparison. So I think there's a statistic, which I don't want to get wrong, about women almost working a couple of months a year without pay if they were to be compared to their male counterparts, for example. Definitely very interesting, or not interesting is the wrong word, quite discouraging that there's a difference between minimum wage and living wage, because if we've calculated that this is what people need to live, then why, like you say, is that not the minimum requirement? And that that difference is almost two pounds... (laughs) so within a working day you know that's a significant amount of money and within a week that's a significant amount of money um gap between what you're in theory being paid and what you actually need to survive yeah absolutely and I guess even living wage you know kind of according to whose standards you know I mean that is meant to be based on this idea that then maybe you can afford a holiday once a year or maybe but you know again living is obviously very different for a lot of different people and what do we consider a good enough um, quality of life but this is what our guests are going to be able to kind of give us so much more insight on way more than we can because they've dedicated their whole lives to this kind of work Okay, so let's jump into our discuss section. And like I said earlier, I'm super excited for the guests we've got this week. They've both got such a wealth of knowledge and real lived experience in this field. So I just can't wait to learn more from both of them and for our listeners to gain that invaluable insight. Uh, So this week I spoke to someone called Gareth Lowe and Gareth is the regional officer with Trade Union Unite, where he helps to do all of the things that we've just spoken about around organising and standing up for equality in the workplace. Um, He also happens to be really passionate about the role that the media plays in society and media reform, and he works towards change within the media. Uh, And in his spare time, that I'm surprised he has any of, he's also a DJ and works in radio. Uh, So without further ado, I'm going to pass over to Gareth to tell us a bit more about trade unions, their importance, and in general, the importance of workers' rights in society. For me, a trade union is collective power made real. This whole idea, if one of us sticks our head above the parapet, we're likely to get shot off. But if we all stick our heads above the parapet at the same time, well, then that's really a bit more of a head scratcher for those wielding the power. 
Um, so for me, a trade union is a collective body um, that's come together to actually stand up for workers' rights. Now, they can be craft unions, so a union looking after, for example, a specific group of workers. And it's in those sort of guilds and craft unions that the whole movement really took off. Um, but what you also see now is general unions. So like my union, Unite, represents workers right across a range of different industries. And of course, there are benefits to both a craft union and a general union. With a craft union, you have a lot more insider knowledge and a real feel for the craft and the trade that you're undertaking. But some of those can be quite small and they don't always have the clout of a general union. So it swings and roundabouts, but really for me, a trade union is an essential thing to join if you're starting in a workplace, much like if you sit down in a car nowadays, you wanna put your seatbelt on. And how does one go about joining a trade union? Well, first thing I would do is I would look and have in your workplace and find out if there's a trade union that's recognized. If there's a trade union that's recognized, they're the ones to join for your group of workers, because then you'll have collective bargaining rights. And that we can enhance on those basic legal workers' rights and get you actually decent terms and conditions. If there's no uh, recognized union, you can still join a union, even if you're an individual member, um, you still get that basic protection in terms of representation uh, in a grievance, or if you're taken to a disciplinary. And of course, uh, you know, if that needs to go through outside of the internal workplace procedures to an employment tribunal, then you're supported with legal support, etc. to do that. So simply ask around the workplace, uh, find out if there's a recognized union, and then you can usually sign up either online or find the workplace rep and have a chat with them. And they can fill you in with the information. I'm really glad to have you on, Gareth, because we've seen the growth of insecure work um, in recent years and the erosion of some of the rights that you're speaking about. Um, and as a fairly young person, <laughs> I hear a lot about some of the major strikes of the past in the 70s, the 80s, in terms like trade union, almost feel sort of alien to me sometimes, um, especially as someone that started off life as a freelancer. However, again, my generation is most likely to experience these things like unemployment, underemployment, low wages, casual work, temporary work. So arguably, probably need to be part of these unions the most. Would you say that awareness of sort of like rights and a willingness to fight for them has reduced in your experience or do you just think they look different? I think it's about the awareness because I think young people, um, yourself still included, um, are <laughs> you know, um, quite aware actually of what their rights are in the workplace. Um, you know, of course, there are some people who are you know, disengaged, but I think that's always been the case. What's really changed is not the awareness, but the legal structure surrounding our workers' rights. Um, you've seen the uh, Trade Union Act come in in 2016, and that massively restricted our effectiveness as a working people's movement to actually uh, fight back, and particularly in 2016, our ability to strike. One of the key workers' rights is to withhold labour. In fact, that act that was brought in in 2016 actually made things a hell of a lot worse than uh, happened under Margaret Thatcher back in the 80s. Now, often when I uh, go out drinking and talking to people who are a little bit older than myself, they say, oh, you guys in the trade union movement, you're not as effective as you were back in the 70s. Well, it's just a simply not the same playing field we're playing on. So you have to look really at the legal changes. And I think it's the legal structure and framework that's changed far more than people's awareness. That's really interesting, actually, um, and puts a new perspective on things, because I do think that there's um, sort of a narrative that's grown that it's uh, awareness and willingness and etc. But 
things have been eroded within the system that have made it actually harder is um, really interesting to learn. But there's a lot of intentional things that have been built into the system that means that fighting for our rights or trying to sustain them are difficult. Absolutely. It's not all bad news, though. You know, don't forget, we fought and won the National Minimum Wage Act in 1998 and also the Equalities Acts in 2006 and 2010. Do they create a completely level playing field for all workers, regardless of, you know, uh, race, gender, sexuality, etc.? No, of course they don't. But they're going a long way towards doing that. And prior to those acts coming in, we were in a worse place. So, of course, there are steps backwards. And sometimes it feels like there are far many more of them than there are steps forwards. But I do believe that over the course of human history, we've seen progress and social progress is something that I passionately believe in. I agree. Um, and one of the things that we constantly try and do on the platform is, as well as sort of introducing topics theoretically, we try and give people practical ways that they can implement change in their daily lives. So what would you say fighting for this issue looks like in 2020? And what could maybe be some of the small things that people could do if they wanted to, to make a change and act on their workers' rights or increase them? Well, I'm going to be a bit bleak again for a minute, if that's all right. Um, we've got the Conservative Party, the Tories, in power in 2020. And uh, that is a major obstacle to fighting for an improving workers' rights collectively on a national level. And we've also got the issue of Brexit, where we might be about to make things a hell of a lot worse by moving away from the most libertarian bloc in the world. And uh, European law is one of our best friends at the moment in the trade union movement. Um, I'll give you a little example of that. Union Learn is a scheme that costs the government and the taxpayer just eight million pounds a year. That's basically an insignificant, you know, correction on a balance book on the national scale. Um, and that's being taken away at the moment. Union Learn is a really important tool for working people because that's the vehicle for allowing us to get people trained up. So why would you take away the training? Now, every one pound that's spent on that um, by the government produces five pounds back into the national purse. So this clearly is a politically motivated attack. You know, at national level and also at international level, politics is key in terms of how to fight on this issue. So I would say go out and vote would be a key way to get involved in fighting back. But of course, at local level, get involved with your local community schemes. And if you're in a workplace, join a trade union. If there are any other vehicles available to you for collective organising, make sure that you're involved with them. You're talking to your fellow workers because you, as a lone worker, have a very small voice. But we, as a movement, have massive power. I couldn't agree more because we talk a lot about the collective power, etc. But I know there will be some listeners who might be freelance or who might work for themselves, how might it look for them? Would it be sort of the same process or is it slightly different? Yeah, so anyone can join a trade union. If you're self-employed, well, then you're, you, you are your own boss. So there is no value to joining a trade union if you're your own boss. But of course, what we see in 2020 is a lot of bogus self-employment. A lot of workers who are actually have a boss but the boss is trying to tell them, oh, we're not your boss. You're not an employee, you're a worker. Now, those two terms have legal definitions in the UK law. And of course, that's something where we would encourage those workers to sign up and help us to try and push back on their behalf. Um, you know, it's, it's a really difficult situation if you are in this gig economy and you don't have stable, secure work. But that's where we need to be um, focusing most of our efforts, because it's these precarious workers who are most subject to, you know, unfair employment practices. In terms of Brexit, 
I've, you know, I've said it again, I've said it before, European law is our best friend. People who are pro-Brexit talk about, oh, the red tape of Brussels. This isn't red tape. These are legislations that are protecting you and I. Uh, and if we want to walk away from them, then we are foolhardy in the extreme to do so. Brexit's one issue that will have a big effect and at one point was dominating conversation, but of course has been overtaken by the next thing I want to ask you about. Oh, COVID. No, don't mention the <laughs> word. How, how have you seen that affect the issue as well? Because I know, for example, that the wealth of billionaires and corporation owners has grown, whilst obviously there's been almost the opposite effect on many um, people that work for them. Absolutely. That wealth divide, that inequality in society is getting bigger and bigger and 2020 has seen it accelerate, which seems so wrong. I mean, we haven't really seen massive changes to workers' rights over COVID-19, but we have seen lots of temporary legislation brought in. And some of that's actually quite socialist. I mean, if you look at Germany and um, New Zealand and some countries globally, they've really backed their workers um, as well as their businesses. And we haven't gone to those lengths in this country, but schemes like the Coronavirus Job Retention Scheme, uh, the CJRS as it's referred to, are actually you know, a way of helping businesses and employees, most crucially from my perspective, in a, actually seeing out this crisis. So we have got temporary legislation that's come in around COVID, um, but yeah, those key rights, those key workers' rights really haven't changed a great deal. It's just that workers have needed to rely on those key rights a hell of a lot more than they may have otherwise. And of course, their trade unions as well. It's been the busiest working year of my life, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I can only I can only imagine. And actually, that's a good place to ask this question, Gareth. What, in your opinion, would the ideal situation be? Well, a massive overhaul and a massive um, bolstering of the rights we have. I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, one is that um, you want to talk about secure work. Really, until you've actually worked for your employer for two years, your employment is not secure if you're working in the UK. You can effectively be sacked without any real reason and any real ability, unless you've been significantly discriminated against, to take that employer to an employment tribunal and have any kind of fair, just outcome. Another example, we've got prohibitive laws around the right to strike that have been made worse over the past 30, 40 years. Now, these actually mean that the withholding of labour becomes increasingly difficult for workers. That, to me, doesn't seem right, doesn't seem just, and it doesn't seem like a level playing field. Field. So I would like to see uh, workers' rights massively enhanced. Uh, don't forget that workers' rights are important for employers too. They allow employers to not have a race to the bottom in terms of working practices, but actually treat their workers fairly and give their... Um, the duty of care that is part of their central service to workers, a real vibrancy as opposed to being a you know, black and white statement on paper. Uh, so I'd love to see workers' rights bolstered and improved, uh, and I'd love to see more uh, of those people in power, particularly the Conservative Party, listening to the Trade Union Congress, the trade unions and the working class movement that is calling out for these changes to be made. Based on the idea that there are benefits the obvious benefits for the employee, but also for the employer. Why do you think it is that these rights aren't upheld? Politically, I think there's an agenda for say, I don't, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but you've seen Tory government after Tory government uh, strip away 
the core rights of working people, and you've seen neoliberal Labour uh, governments not strip them away to the same extent, but fail to actually um, rein uh, reintroduce those rights that were stripped away by the previous Tory administrations. We've moved, we talked about that wealth gap earlier in this conversation, we've moved to a culture now where finance is key, and uh, if you want to be a successful country, it's all about GDP, and where generates more GDP than the speculative world of finance in the city. And that, unfortunately, has turned out to be a much better way of wealth generation on a short term than actual manufacturing or looking at green, sustainable jobs. So we have a real problem in our culture and society. It's about short termism. It's not addressing the impending global climate crisis. It's not looking at how are we going to support workers as automation becomes more prevalent. And, you know, much like the Industrial Revolution, we don't need everybody to be doing the job and the work that they were before because we've got a new way for that uh, instead we've got a system that's uh, regressive that's stuck in the past and is intent upon maintaining that divide between wealthy and poor got a bit passionate there and <laughs> it's what we love that's that's exactly what we're looking for um yes we spoke about um capitalism our episode last episode was actually all on capitalism and a lot of the things you've just said were echoed and explored in that episode can you foresee a time when your work will no longer be needed? Maybe when automation fully takes over. Uh, no, seriously. <laughs> uh, there'll always be a relevance uh, for my line of work and trade unions. And people talk about the diminishing relevance as we move to a gig economy. Well, I think that just means we need to reinvent the model and make sure the model is fit for purpose rather than throw the baby out with the bathwater. So long as there are employers and employees, so long as there's inequality, trade unionism will always be necessary. Okay, and so this week I spoke to Dave Smith, who from when we first launched this podcast, we would I was like thinking, when are we going to get to interview Dave? He is really a force to be reckoned with. But um, Dave was one of many construction workers who was blacklisted for his political activism, but essentially quite basic stuff like being a health and safety rep in the workplace and sort of pushing employers for, you know, much better working conditions, in, including just basic things like pushing against unpaid wages, poor toilet facilities, um, asbestos in the workplace, you know, so things things you wouldn't think you'd have to really fight for. Um, so as a result, he was blacklisted and, and he will explain a bit more about what blacklisting really meant, but essentially meant that employers could look at a list and see the workers that were considered blacklisted and choose not to give them work. Um, as a result, Dave became the secretary of the blacklist support group, um, and they also fought to actually get compensation for themselves for the years that they were blacklisted, which actually was a fight that they won. Not that that undoes, you know, all the injustice faced, but they did actually get some compensation for this. Um, and Dave has now co-authored a book called Blacklisted um, and, you know, is a very much a public figure and representative on fighting for and campaigning for workers' rights. We live in a society where basically... You know, there, there are certain things that are just seen as entirely natural. And this is the way the natural world works. And it's always worked like that. And one of the things that is just assumed to be a perfectly natural thing in, in a society we live in is sort of that private companies are allowed to make profits out of, you know, out of people working for them. Um, and, you know, whether it's 
been, you know, Victorian mill owners or, or literally this morning I read an article about Amazon abusing their workers uh, in campaigning about, you know, health and safety on the, on, on, in their workplaces. You know, if a society basically gives private companies making a profit certain legal rights, and it is seen that making a profit and a business being successful is the most important thing and everything else becomes secondary to that, then that has immediate effects. You know, you can have you can have huge companies that completely destroy the environment that are massive polluters, not just for, you know, global warming, uh, you know, and, and climate change, but but just literally spewing their stuff into rivers and, you know, killing bees and, and all the rest of it. They're praised as being fantastic companies because they're making a profit sort of thing. And, you know, you know, it's all glory to, you know, the rich billionaires sort of thing. And, you know, these people are praised and praised and praised. But of course, the workers who are doing the work <laughs> very often, you know, they're, they're, you know, whether their health and safety is being looked after, whether they've got enough money to actually pay, you know, their own rent, whether they've got enough money to, you know, pay for, you know, their kids to go on school trips and stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, and of course, the vast majority of of us are workers. We work for a living. You know, we have to go to work in order to get, you know, money to, to survive, to live, you know. You can be oppressed in the world for multiple things, you know, quite clearly, you know, on race, on gender or whatever it happens to be. But virtually all of us have to go to work, you know. So so there appears to be this overarching issue of, you know, we live in a world where we all have to work for a living and actually some some of the people in society are granted these special rights to be able to exploit people and make profits out of us and the rest of us are sort of trying to play catch up when you have no workers rights that's when you know that's when people are just killed literally killed for doing their jobs you've only got to look at the uh, building of the uh, football stadiums in Qatar for the world cup uh, where undocumented labour has been brought in, you know, not allowed to join a trade union, they're not really entitled to any kind of legal rights, and you've seen the number of deaths while building those uh, football stadia. You know, it, you know that's what happens. So basically, working people have always come whenever whenever this has happened. You know, from the probably from the pyramids up to they're probably, you know, when when we're building when we're building things in space, you know, they'll they'll probably be the same kind of process that that working people when they work together will realise that actually we can see we're not getting what we're entitled to. We, we can see we're not getting the, the kind of health and safety, the sort of fair treatment that we deserve and enough money to pay our bills. So, you know, we've always come together to do that. It's a very amorphous thing, workers' rights, because if you can just talk about money, you can just talk about, uh, you know, health and safety. But I'm always, I always think it's about equality. I think it's about decency, it's about human respect and treating people with dignity that just doesn't fall from the sky you know you don't stop racism by just saying that racism is bad and it naturally happens equally you don't get better workers rights by saying oh isn't it terrible how these workers have been treated badly you know oh isn't it terrible that young kids you know were sent up chimneys or down the mines or whatever it happens to be you know you know people have to do something about it people have to campaign about it nothing changes just because it should things change because people come together collectively and through collective action change things. Also, Dave, there's so much there that I kind of want to 
grab at I think um you know you've spoken very much about things don't change just because they should I, I think that's that's a crucial point and so people have fought for things over the year you know with decades and centuries and that's how society kind of keeps evolving um in some senses you might then say that we in theory might constantly be moving towards a little bit closer to the to the finish line possibly but actually it feels like workers' rights um, or perhaps working conditions um, have eroded quite a lot in recent years. And, um, you know, we spoke in our capitalism episode about the welfare state um, and how that, you know, gets set up to at least cushion some of the worst effects of capitalism and that they were stronger, welfare states, at least across Europe, were much stronger in, let's like the 70s than they are now. Has the passion to fight for this decreased? Has awareness amongst people decreased? Have people just grown tired? Have governments become worse? Has the market become more fierce? Like what's actually, what's happening? Like what, do you see a difference? You fought for this for many years. There is a view sometimes, it's actually presented sometimes in education or on the TV, that there's this natural progression to a more fair, a more equal, more democratic world uh, kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, the British establishment love trotting this one out as if, oh, look at us, we look, we're almost like the pinnacle of sort of, you know, democracy and all the rest of it. But people forget that people had to fight for democracy. You know, the vote wasn't given to work and working people, they had to fight for it. And the people who did fight for it were hung at the time, literally were hung, you know? Um, at the time of, uh, you know, British empire subjugating people all around the world, fortunes were being made by, you know, by, by dynasties that still exist to this day in, in Britain out of the slave trade and exploiting uh, colonial countries. That was when working people were fighting for the vote. It was a campaign called the Chartists. They fought for the vote, and the Chartists were all arrested, and a lot of them, you know, you know, well, you can just read the history of it. Now, at the same time, when it was when early trade unions were being set up, it was about the time of the Industrial Revolution. And to even vote to be in Parliament, you had to own property. And not your own house, but like swathes of property to even have a vote to vote in Parliament. So, so it's hardly surprising that the rich people who are in Parliament literally voted to ban trade unions. There were laws called the Combinations Act. And anyone who was in a trade union was banned, you know, it was against the law. And people got transported to, to Australia for joining trade unions, you know. Um, so, so, you know, we, we fought for everything we've got. You know, women had to fight to get the vote. Uh, you know, the suffragettes fought to get the vote. You know, there isn't some gradual sort of, you know, the, the liberal democracy view of the world that, oh, look, we're just so far-sighted and, you know, we improve things, we improve things. It's just nonsense. You know, just complete. That just it, that bears no reality to the truth. There is a struggle taking place, uh, and it always does take place between those who run society, you know, and and those of us who have to work for a living. Uh, you know, I mean, we can call it class. Lots of people have called it class, but you know, they're they're you know, I'm not just talking about people being rich, but people who actually you know own and control you know the you know the, the society who, who are the leading figures in the judiciary and the police in, in education in in the media and, and that kind of stuff you know so so no I don't believe in a natural natural progression to a to, to a perfect world far from it you have to fight for it and 
I think what's happened at the moment is across the world, you can see there is a move, you know, there is a move across a lot of sort of Western uh, Europe and, you know, America is another example, you know, where there has been a shift to the right. It clearly has been a shift to the right. But equally, I'm a natural optimist. You know, I genuinely believe that we can change things. That are, you know, I, you know, look what they did in the American civil rights movement. Look what they, the suffragettes did. Look what the African National Congress did. You know, we can change things. You know, 150 years ago, there was no health and safety law at all in this country, and one of the, one of the big disputes that actually led to health and safety becoming a big issue in in in, in the workplace in this country, was a, uh, was actually in Bow in East London. Brian and May's match factory in Bow in East London and all the people who worked in there were, were women or in some cases young girls literally 13 14 years old were working in this match factory and to make matches at the time you used phosphorus uh, and the job of the the women working there was to to dip the end of the wood into the phosphorus to make a match and after a period of time they all got this thing called fossy jaw which basically, if you're exposed to phosphorus for a long time, your bones rot. And, you know, literally, as, as young women, their bones were rot. And they had this big strike, strike it's called the match worker strike. Um, so it's very famous. Uh, and, and after, like, sort of weeks on strike, they win this big victory. Health and safety is implemented. And literally, the, the, the husbands and the brothers of all of these women, it was young women who led the strike, then literally a few months later went on to, to have a huge dispute in the docks at the time, a huge dispute in the, uh, in, in the gas works at this time, which led to the formation of the biggest unions uh, in this country that still exist today, you know, that still exist today. So, so it's always been you know people coming together and and fighting that change things and that's why i'm an optimist you know that yeah it, it won't just change just because we should you know we need to fight for it and look you've only got to look at you know people often say to me oh people are not interested in any of this stuff at all but you've only got to look at the people who are working for uber or Deliveroo or stuff like that, you know, where, you know, apparently they haven't got an employer like, oh, no, you just work for yourself and you're working for an app on your phone. Well, the app, the people who own the app on the phone are paying these people, you know, the people who own the app on the phone are making billions around the world from it. And the workers are having to work all hours under the sun. They're not even entitled to holiday pay or stuff like that. You know, the most basic kind of what you'd call workers rights, enough money to pay their bills. Yet, rather than saying, oh, there's nothing we can do about it, the law does, you know, it's too constrictive, you've had loads of campaigns, you know, loads of unions are doing stuff with Uber and with Deliveroo and, you know, Uber Eats and people like that, you know, so I'm eternally optimistic that we can do stuff, you just, you know, people just need encouragement, uh, and we need victories as well, you know, and sometimes there are some great victories out there just doesn't necessarily always get reported in the newspapers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely that um, in so many ways. And, and there's maybe a sense that like a smoke screen's been lifted, or at least for some people, it might feel like that. You know, for, for some of us, we may think well, we kind of always knew and maybe we just needed something to kind of allow us to talk about it. But you spoke so much there about health and safety and, you know, the things that workers kind of have fought for over time. COVID is, is such an obvious example of that. Um, and your background is specifically in the construction industry. And that was actually one of the industries that just didn't seem to get shut down. <laughs> um, and it's an industry that's incredibly difficult to regulate, like closeness and distance and all these kinds of things, right? So 
I mean, has this been a moment? Like, do you feel looking back, we might look at this as a moment, the way you've just talked about, you know, certain moments in history, do you feel it's galvanized more people or not really? I mean, workers' rights have been pivotal to any discussion about whether people get to stay at home to save their lives, right, during, during COVID. COVID hasn't caused the health and safety problem. COVID hasn't caused the precarious working or, or the lack of workers' rights. What COVID has done is exposed it, you know, it's exposed the fact that certain groups of workers have got, you know, uh, you know, I wouldn't say decent human rights because income workers' rights, because compared to other countries, we've got you know, very, very poor workers' rights, but at least some minimal uh, workers' rights, where a whole swathe of the population, a whole swathe of workers uh, across the economy have got next to no uh, legal rights. I don't think the law has caught up with how people actually work nowadays. You know, uh, the law still imagines that everyone's uh, a direct employee working for an employer. And there are millions of people out there who are working for agencies, who are working on a self-employed basis, a freelance basis. There's a whole micro industry that sets up sort of, you know, fake uh you know uh limited companies for people to to be paid via a limited company rather than being paid as an employee and the people who are making the people who are benefiting from all of this stuff mainly are the employers because the employers don't have to pay you any redundancy pay even if you've worked for them for 10 years you know they don't have to pay you any sick pay they don't have to pay you any holiday pay because you don't work for them you work for yourself you know and there's this sort of arm's length almost like smoke screen, smoke and mirrors kind of effect to, to try and distance themselves from, from, from the fact of having any sort of duties as an employer. Um, but I think people have fought back against it. In, in the NHS, the stuff that I found really inspiring is when the, not just when the NHS workers got clapped for, but when people actually came out of the NHS and stood out and said, we're not doing this, it's unsafe, you know? Um, actually, construction sites at the very beginning there are a number of construction sites that walked off that when when it when the lockdown first happened there are lots of construction sites where workers held meetings in the canteen or even big outside meetings uh, and voted and said we're not working in this because it's unsafe uh, and so there were actually at the very beginning of the uh, lockdown lots of campaigns there was even a, a huge online uh, thing uh, if you follow the hashtag hashtag shut the sites you can see the amount of stuff that was going on for, for a period of time and it was like repeatedly exposing people who were walking off the job or there was sort of campaigns what the employers did is the employers sacked people rather than being concerned about their health and safety workers who actually said look this is unsafe you're clearly breaching the you know you can't you can't work on a building site and be two meters away from someone because when there's a great big heavy metal you know uh lump of metal that needs picking up then sometimes three or four of you have to be round it literally face to face with each other you know you're breathing into each other's face um and everyone who works in the building site knows that two meter social distancing is impossible and there was a big dispute at the beginning about it workers who complained got sacked which just demonstrates you know really what the employers are like they're more interested in making money than they are in protecting the health and safety of their members. I mean, they'll cry when someone dies, but but they'll but anyone who complains about it will be be sacked and, and booted out. I think when lockdown finishes, there will be a bursting of 
uh, activity. Even during lockdown, union membership has really come through the roof. I mean, there's been huge rise in union membership. Uh, so I teach uh, union reps how to negotiate and how to organise, you know, their members and that kind of stuff. And certainly during lockdown, we've had this huge wave of unions coming to us saying, look, we've had like, hundreds of people putting themselves forward to become safety reps. So basically union reps who campaign on health and safety. And can we train them? A, a massive increase compared to what we normally have. So there is something going on out there. And I think... You know, once we all go back to sort of normality, if, if you like, um, I think that's going to pay off. I hope so. Anyway, you know, you've, you've got to be an optimist. That's really great to hear, actually, because about the rise in memberships and so on, because you kind of you kind of get this impression and, and that that type of mobilizing has has, you know, deteriorated. Right. Or that it was like a certain type of mobilizing that took place in the 70s or whatever. And that we've just, as you said, that that it's kind of dispersed and that maybe you know, there is such a focus now on even other types of perhaps identity politics that don't allow people to kind of galvanize collectively quite as much. And that there isn't this idea that there is one thing that threads us all together, which is that most of us have to work for a living. Like, and I, so it's actually, that's actually a really, really encouraging thing to hear. The mobilization stuff, I think is, is, is key because I, I hear people talk to me sometimes about, oh, what you did in the 90s and that kind of stuff. You were really, you know, there was always this natural sense of solidarity in the 90s. And I think, what are you talking about? In the 90s? Well, I mean, I was involved in some major disputes in the 1990s. But in the 1990s, we all looked back at the 1970s. Mm -hmm. and, oh, in the 1970s, we're doing all this stuff, you know. And now I, I'm, I take inspiration from like the McDonald strikers the McStrikers you know they're young kids mm. doing this I, mean, I don't mean that dismissively but they're young people doing this and they come with a different verve and a different way of doing it and you know and good fair play to them you know I mean you know that they, they we're living in a, a different world you know and they're using technology uh, as a way of organizing but I'm a big believer in Yes, we can use technology and social media to organise, but organising is more than just liking a post or retweeting a post. Organising means, you know, that we want people to do something. You use social media as a way of getting people together and getting people to protest and whatever. And I think it is. I think you've only got to look at Black Lives Matters. You know, it's another classic example where you didn't need a big bureaucratic, you know, structure and voting at annual general meetings. It almost from the bottom up kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, mobilisation that people through social media got people to do it. And if you can organise going down the pub with your mates through social media, you know, then you can organise workers to have a protest with social media as well. You know, and I think a lot of the people who were involved in the student movement or Extinction Rebellion or or uh, Black Lives Matters. Some of them will be union members. Some of them will be young union members. And at some point, they're going to take on the job that I took on of being a being a being a, being a, a union uh, activist as well. And I think they'll bring much more energy in than I've got nowadays. <laughs> Well, and I'm so impressed. I feel you know you're literally you're speaking to us not long after a COVID recovery yourself. Um, so so okay. So Dave, like in that case, um, for anybody listening, you know, um, as we always try and do this with this podcast, like, what are some quite tangible things that people can do um, if people are listening, if people have never really, if people are interested in unionizing but haven't done it before, if they have a different field of work but they want to show some kind of solidarity and allyship, like, what are 
what are the steps? You know, what are some tangible steps? Maybe some quicker wins that people can start with so that they don't feel like it's such an upward climb. You know, it can seem like this, oh my God, we've, you know, we've got global capitalism to fight against there. We're going to, you know, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, you know, a mountain to climb. Uh, you know, we're all part of the process of, of fighting that. Um, but, you know, you fight locally, you know, you think globally, but you, you, you campaign and you fight locally on what you can win, you know. And I would say to anyone, especially any young person, is if you're in a workplace and, and, and the other people in your workplace are all complaining about, you know, the boss or complaining about you know not you know not knowing whether they've got a shift until the morning and the boss is then sending you a message on whatsapp or in some cases like the mcdonald's case they actually the mcdonald's dispute actually part of it was the fact that that some of the young women were being abused by the by the the managers you know they had a their, their national dispute was partly over sexual discrimination and sexual harassment of, of the young uh, women in the in the workplace i've heard people talk about oh, what we should do is, you know, join a political party or, or you know, join this particular campaign or whatever. But you're at work, a lot of us, for, you know, seven or eight hours a day with people that we meet day in, day out all the time. Talk to those people. If there's a few of you who are prepared to do something about it, then, then basically join a union. You know, bring, get yourself together and join a union. And if you, as an, if you're, you're an activist in the environmental movement or the anti-racism movement or whatever it happens to be, and you've got some skills in that, then put yourself forward to be a rep, because any union will want people to be a union rep. You know, they'll give you the support, they'll give you the training. We've got legal protection, and lawyers will back you up if you're in trouble. But we want what we actually need is this network of people who are prepared to actually talk to the people that they work with. And it's all about just chatting with people and finding out what their concerns are. And most of the time, when we talk to our co-workers, they're just as upset as we are about stuff, you know? But sometimes they, they don't see how you can do anything. Well, what can you achieve about it? And actually it's the coming together and doing things collectively that makes the difference. Because if one person goes and talks to their manager, then it's easy to just get rid of one person or ignore. If you all come together as a group and talk to your manager, even if one person has to be the, the spokesperson at the front, but if you all come together collectively to do it, you know, it just changes the dynamic in the workplace. You know, if there's a power structure in the workplace and most of the power is with the employer, you know, the way you the way you counterbalance that is just not doing it one at a time, but, you know, getting all of you together to do it because then there's a little bit of a counterbalance. You know, we were talking in our last episode about how if there are so many more people that seem to be harmed by capitalism than benefiting from it, then how on earth is it still upheld? Like if so many more of us might stand to gain something by changing it, then lose something there is obviously it's it's a belief system thing right it's your imagination it's your mindset that kind of has to shift so that you can actually see that as a possibility you know that's that's the first thing and we're not even ever obviously for understandable reasons encouraged to even begin that thought process yeah. Dave I feel like you and your own life I don't want to call it a career because that sounds so neoliberal in your career. life <laughs> not a career <laughs> in the kind of jumble of things that you've strung together in your life you've had some pretty like impressive you've had some wins you know you've had some ta real tangible wins that may I'm sure at some <clears throat> points felt like they were never going to happen and I'd really like to kind of 
give people some of that really like actual hope. I mean, can you share some of those with us? Like some of the things that have kept you going over all this time? My view of what I've done in the past is is all linked to, to campaigning, really. You know, I mean, I've got a life, I've got a family life, I've got, got you know, I, I support West Ham, I, you know, I go to football and that kind of stuff as well, you know. But but equally, you know, I spend my 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 I've spent a lot of my adult life campaigning. As, as I said, when I was on a building site and I was a trade union member on a building site, the employers didn't always like me. Um, it's ironic because what I was is I was a safety rep. And what I was doing was highlighting asbestos or highlighting the fact that a young lad had fallen off a scaffold from three floors up and had to be taken away in an ambulance because he was so ill. When I highlighted that, my employer didn't like it and they sacked me. And what happened was... As I said at the beginning, me and thousands of other construction workers who complained about health and safety or complained about unpaid wages were put on a blacklist. Um, and when we first talked about that, everyone thought we were like conspiracy theorists. What are you talking about, blacklist? You know, how would anybody know? You're all self-employed. You know, you don't work for anyone. How would some company know you know five years later that a few years ago you had a dispute about health and safety on a building so how would anyone possibly know you know you, you know literally they talked to us as if we were cranks uh, for mentioning it then in 2009 a government department did a raid on a small office in the midlands and literally found all the files that they kept on us basically there were 3200 files and the companies involved with it were Balfour Beatty, Carillion, uh, Sir Robert McAlpine Limited, Skanskers, Kias, all of the big multinationals. Um, and they basically used to get their managers on a building. So if anyone complained about anything, uh, would, would write, you know, send the information to a central database which was kept on. And then if anybody applied to get a job on any building site anywhere in the country that was run by these big multinationals, your name would be checked against this list. And if your name was on the list, you got sacked or you just turned down from the job all the time. And it was all recorded on the files. And each time they checked a name, it cost two pound. And the last invoice for Sir Robert McAlpine Limited, because it got closed down when they were building the Olympics and their last invoice was for 28,000 pounds. The people who were orchestrating it were all the directors of these multinational companies, uh, completely unlawful. Uh, and so when it came out, suddenly all of the all of the stuff that we were talking about for years was basically proven to be true. That was in 2009. And in the intervening years, we've, you know, we've had uh, we've changed the law, got a brand new law introduced called uh, the blacklisting regulations. Uh, there was a select committee investigation into blacklisting that produced seven separate reports. We've had blacklisting firms thrown off of publicly funded contracts worth millions of pounds uh, because of it. Um, there is... Uh, uh, there, there's been motions passed in the European Parliament uh, against uh, blacklisting of uh, union members standing up for workers' rights. There was a, a, a high court trial uh, where 700 of us were all involved in a high court trial against the, the, the biggest of the multinational companies. Uh, and all of the companies made a public apology, uh, which was read out in the court and gave us a uh, damages. Uh, you know, payment. Um, you know, very nice. We all like a, a few quid. Uh, but to be honest, it's not justice, you know, because the people who did it to us, we know who they are. The links to colonialism, the links to everything, it's that mindset that we have to get rid of. And there was a point you made earlier about most people don't, you know, just we just live our lives and don't necessarily get this. Well, it's not surprising. 
because I make this speech at universities around the country. And at the end of the speech, when I've talked about blacklisting, when I've talked about the undercover police spying, not just on us, but like, you know, women activists, you know, the Stephen Lawrence family, for God's sake, you know, Doreen and Neville Lawrence were spied on by, by these undercover police units. When I talk about that, at the end, I ask people in the audience to put their hand up if they've heard about it before. And sometimes there's like 100 people in the room and about two or three people put their hand up. So the reason that I think I carry on doing this is it's about getting the publicity out there. The reason for this podcast, why I want to do this podcast, is it'll be different people listening to it than, than I normally talk to. You know, because most people in this country still think things like that don't happen in this country. You know, oh, that kind of stuff happens elsewhere. It doesn't happen in this country. It clearly does. But you have to think to yourself, well, where do we... Why would a 100 people doing a politics degree not have heard of... The undercover police spying on the Lawrence family. I mean, that's huge, yeah. but but most of them haven't. Why? Because where do we get our knowledge from? We get it from the media. You know, there are four billionaires, most of them don't actually even live in Britain, who run the British media. You know, you know, billionaires do not tend to be, you know, very sympathetic towards trade unions or 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 can I say sympathetic to people who are campaigning for a better environment or for a fairer world or for a safer world or for you know a, a more equitable world so so it's not surprising that from the mainstream media we don't pick up this stuff um so we have to have our own media and you know thank you for <laughs> running a podcast to do that. <laughs> and here we are making a tiny tiny dent in in the billion dollar media industry i, I hope at least but um it's exactly that and you know our guests on our on our previous show um from economy literally said that the government had passed a law saying that actually critique of capitalism was not allowed to be you know given in schools and the history of capitalism couldn't really be taught in schools and so on so this is this is very deep and i and i feel everything you've just said about just how little people know and also how uncoincidental any of it is it's not like you're like oh i mean maybe that one manager just happened not to be that sympathetic or whatever but it's a it's an orchestrated thing and it all ties together and these things are made to be this way. I guess I want to ask you if it's at all, I don't know, if it's ever even possible. And I mean, you've left us at least with a sense of hope, I feel, and, and, some, and some wins, which I feel is really important for people to hear. But when, if at all, do you think your work would, will no longer be needed? The thing about workers' rights is if you live in a society where big business is given all of these legal rights to exploit people, then even if we improve it slightly, and even if we get a little bit more pay, and even if we improve equality a little bit, and even if the parliament passes laws about health and safety laws, we're just tickling at the edges, really. <laughs> you know, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I'm all in favour of incremental improvement. Yes, of course, the, you know, no one's against more pay, no one's against better health and safety, no one's against better equality. You know, of course, I'm in favour of all of that, and I'll campaign for all of that as well. But if we concentrate only on that, what we sometimes do is miss the big picture. And the big picture is society that we live in today is structured in such a way in order to allow multinational companies to produce things, you know, that kill people. 
that literally killed people. I'm not just talking about armaments industry. I'm talking about cigarettes industry and, uh, and you know, asbestos industry uh, and, you know, other uh, other things that literally kill people. People are, you know, people, there has been an you know, an epidemic of people committing suicide and mental health uh, problems because of stress in the workplace. And COVID has just exposed that even, even more. You know, I, I think it's not that radical. I don't think it's that extreme to say we could have a society that is based on everybody having a house, everyone having enough food to eat, and you know, people being able to go to university without putting themselves in debt. There's enough money sploshing around you know the reason people are living on the streets isn't because they're feckless you know it's because there's not enough houses or if there are houses they're too expensive there's money that we can do things to produce things you know human beings can produce stuff can build stuff you know but what we need is a society structured in such a way that it's more interested in looking after people than it is in looking after the profit for people who've got bloody enough money as it is so Fazeo, what did you what did you think of that? If there's a fan club for our guests this week, I'm definitely joining. <laughs> I I'm actually like, yeah, I'm over here fangirling quite hard, I think, for both of them this week. Really, really, really inspired and quite mobilized, I feel, after um those interviews. For me, Dave is one of those people that I wish would become an MP. I feel like he's the kind of person that in my mind should be an MP um, rather than some of like, I think politics has morphed into quite an elitist thing in the modern day, but it's these people with that level of lived experience and real understanding of society and its makeup and what needs to change in it and how that change should come about that I really wish would take a seat in parliament rather than maybe some of the people that have lived quite sheltered lives um, and have maybe quite grand ideas and theories but really in terms of practical lived experience are quite limited um so I'm going to start a day for PM campaign <laughs> so so there you go Dave if you're listening Fazeo has big hopes for you as if you didn't have enough stuff on your hands as it were um, no, I completely agree. I was just sat there like interviewing him thinking, oh my God, like he could, I could just let him talk forever and we'd have some kind of five hour long podcast. But, you know, to hear people that have also had real successes in their life and, you know, it kind of goes back a bit to what our very first episode um, with Azar Majidi on, on Uprisings, where there was this sense of like people who've been in it for a really long time and acknowledge that it's hard and acknowledge that there will be times where you don't know if a success is going to come through but there are some and you know Layla said it too you know you have to acknowledge the wins that we do get to keep the fight going and I think with you know with Dave sort of saying things don't just change because they should unfortunately and it's not a given that in history we're on this linear upward trajectory where we're constantly moving closer and closer to to enlightenment or closer and closer to progressiveness we might not be in some things like workers rights we might even be regressing exactly and the reminder that any change that has come so far has come through action it's not just that you know it's some superior or like like you say it's not just things that have happened naturally um and even some of the societies that we live in especially in the West that might sort of lord some of these values over um, other places in the world, 
these principles are things that have come through fights. Um, they, they weren't sort of like these natural principles that were bestowed on these lands. They've come through everyday citizens fighting for these rights, you know. And again, that reminder that everything is political and structural and intentional and often orchestrated. Both of them talked about laws that have been put in place or practices that have been put in place to create and maintain the status quo that have actually been destructive to the experience of everyday people. So yeah, I guess there's, in that there's both sort of disempowerment, you might feel quite helpless, but also the empowerment through noticing that any change does come through people just like you and I, especially as a collective. They both spoke about working collectively. We all have the power to make that change, you know. No, absolutely. And I think we, we've said this in previous episodes as well, like there are so many more of us than there are of actually probably numerically the people doing any kind of oppressing and if we all believed that and we joined together and you know Gaz very much says you know that is what unions are like you realizing that if you do pull together you actually are quite strong but you each trying to make requests on your own in isolation is not going to work and so having that like trust in a way and solidarity with people around you like you said in the learn section like actually people that are unionized workplaces have higher wages because they have obviously fought for that so it works um and if we get over the idea that unions are inconvenient because at some point in history like all the movements we now revere like the suffragettes or the civil rights movement or whatever they will have been inconvenient at the time like to the people faced with exactly and they wouldn't have had any guarantee of success or any of those things and I think we spoke about this a bit last week but that's one of in my opinion one of the main powers of capitalism is that it tricks people into not recognizing their own individual power and also into sort of equating financial success with hard work and almost as if it's the way things need to be when actually um, like we've seen it's not individuality and individual hard work it's the collective action that actually will probably bring about what most people um, would see as a just fair and desirable world so in that vein I guess one of the things that people can take (laughs) from from this week's episode is the notion of working collectively and taking action which I I think a notion that we we repeat quite often but seems to be a very important one for all of the different topics that we've covered. Yeah definitely and I think you know there was some very tangible advice there join a union first of all really really tangible advice you know find out if there already is one that that's doing well and is powerful and um you know both Gaz and um Dave are very active on social media you can find them both on you know Twitter and and they they share a lot of information so I think that was very tangible yeah and on the point, sorry, about joining a union, when we were looking into this, I actually found that nearly 80% of people in unions currently are over 35. And that means that nearly 40% of the working population aren't in them. Actually, younger people, which I think are some of the people that are listening to this podcast, need to be the people to join unions, especially because not only does that mean that they're protecting their rights, it also means that they're sustaining unions. Because if everyone that's a part of a union retires, these unions won't exist anymore, you know? So even from a selfless point of view, it's something that's really important to do for society. And I think, you know, we are in a lot of ways seeing young people mobilised on a lot of issues, but actually unions do seem to be this kind of slightly old school concept. And I think one thing that Dave said that really stayed with me was that There's no doubt that you will be oppressed in the world for a lot of different things and it will be race and it will be gender and it will be sexuality and disability and a lot of things. But actually one thing that almost all of us have in common is that we do have to work for a living 
And that goes across all of those things. And so that's almost one of the biggest common denominators that you can think of. So just imagine if we like built solidarity around that with each other, um, that would probably be some of, one of the main common grounds we could possibly have. So everyone, join a union. Um, that that is that is this resounding um, you know I think advice from this week. But really believe that you have rights. Like know that you have rights. I think that's the biggest thing. Like your employer giving you those things is not like a nice to have. It's not a bonus. It's not kind of them being charitable. Like it is their duty. Um, and I think that's one of the main things that's being really eroded at the moment is that there is even a such thing as, as that duty and that if you get it, then you're just lucky. Yeah. And consciously think of all the micro ways that you can contribute to making sure those rights are upheld and fought for. So from things like joining a union to who you vote for and all these little things that are sort of your voice in how these things go. And we've seen this year with COVID um, suddenly how much again those rights became very important and actually, you know, an, an, an illness hits that forces people not to be able to work. It may not even be your choice not to work. Well, then you need to have an employer that goes, okay, then we'll still pay you, you know, or we'll, we'll furlough you or we'll adjust our working hours and we'll let you work from home. And, and, you know, Dave, having been a construction worker very much, you know, that's an industry where they didn't do that, for example. So it, again, now maybe this year has maybe shown people how important it actually is to have those rights and have that dialogue because anything can happen to anybody at any time. Yeah, exactly. And the idea that those rights shouldn't only come into place in crisis. Why can they not just be rights that we have just because of we're humans and we deserve some sort of decency, you know? So on COVID, I mean, we've been quite good, I think, at avoiding talking about COVID for 10 whole episodes, at least talking about it in depth. But we are coming up um, to what is going to be our last episode of this year. Don't worry, we will be back literally the two weeks after that. So it will be very unnoticeable. But our last episode of this year literally does come out on, um, I think, the 30th of, of December. And we would really like to do a bit of a reflection on this year and to hear from any of you who've been listening across different industries, across different sectors that you work in, how COVID may have impacted you, whether it's taught you anything, whether it's shifted anything for you and how you maybe intend to enter 2021 um and we would love anyone to send us messages sound bites even if you can record us like an audio message about your work and you know your maybe your industry we'd love to hear from you um you can email talk to untelevised at gmail.com and it's the digit two or you can always inbox us on our instagram untelevised underscore tv it would be amazing if you could send those in the form of voice, voice notes just recorded on your phone because then we can play your lovely voices on air. But if you would prefer, you can also send us some text and we're happy enough to read those out for you. Yes, absolutely. We can do the work for you if you like. But yeah, so join us in, in two weeks time for our final episode of 2020. And we really hope that you go out now and feel empowered and get mobilised and, and join, join a union if, if nothing else. Yeah, exactly. Um, in the meantime, don't forget to follow, subscribe and review us. And we'll see you for that last episode of 2020. I can't believe it. Um, we've made it. <laughs> we've made it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye. Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't want to come down from my feet. 
Our planet on, start the ground. 